0: so you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared 2. That's notion.com slash squared.
1: If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening, and early episodes too.
0: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, an archive discussion with David Kilcullen, the former soldier, diplomat, and military expert, discusses the complexities and consequences of Western campaigns in locations ranging from Iraq to Afghanistan. This month will mark a year since the Taliban takeover of Kabul in August 2021 and the chaotic withdrawal of Western forces from Afghanistan. We'll be discussing the issue further with British Afghan social commentator Shabnam Nazimi, war correspondent Jeremy Bowen and journalist Paul Mason in the coming days. But first, we're revisiting a discussion from 2020 which looks at the nature of past Western interventions and the guerrilla warfare resistance that has followed. David Kilcullen is an expert and author on unconventional and guerrilla warfare. A former soldier and diplomat, he was a senior counterinsurgency advisor for the US during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. In 2020, David joined Carl Miller of the think tank Demos to discuss the themes of his book The Dragons and the Snakes, how the rest learned to fight the West. Here's Carl with more. David, hello. Hey, how are you? Very good. So, you were
1: described on a Al Qaeda um, messaging board as a uh, Petraeus's
2: Australian mercenary. Yes, that gave us quite a good laugh at the time. But when I started reading the the detailed after-action review that these guys have put up, it was actually pretty interesting. I mean, it was this is very clearly a learning organization. They were spending a lot of time time trying to figure out why exactly it was that they were getting their asses kicked during the surge and figuring out how to respond. So, yeah, what started off as a joke, looking at that comment, we thought, mm, actually, these guys have a pretty robust, adaptive kind of lessons learned approach.
1: And it seemed to be kind of observations like that kind of put together, which seemed to be the kind of like the reason for writing this book, the kind of the realization that here was a, you know, a non-state actor, but he had done a basically a kind of post-conflict write up the same that you would have expected from from any capable capable military around the world? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think the general theme of the book, it's about adaptation and how adversaries have evolved under conditions that we created at the end of the Cold War, and particularly with the, the first Gulf War, which sort of forced everybody to adapt and evolve if they wanted to, to survive. And one of the things you see from you know, a variety of different pieces of field work that I did and people I spoke to is that different adversaries who might have started off quite different from each other have actually evolved toward each other and now look rather similar in the way that they operate.
1: And of course, you divide the adversaries into two main groups, the dragons and the snakes. Who are the dragons and who are the snakes?
2: Yeah, and I should say that I can't claim credit for that framing. That was Jim Woolsey, who was President Bill Clinton's first CIA director. And when he gave his confirmation testimony in 1993... John Kerry, who was later the Secretary of State, who was on the Intelligence Committee at the time, said to him, look, it's the end of the Cold War. We're in this post-Cold War environment. What do you see as the threat picture that the US will need to deal with? And he gave this extraordinarily prescient testimony, which you can see online, and said, we've slain a large dragon, talking about the Soviet Union, but now we find ourselves in a jungle full of snakes. And in many ways, the dragon was easy to keep track of. And he talks about weak states, failing states, and non-state actors like terrorists and criminals and you know, drug smugglers and all that and says that's going to be you – know the snakes will be the problem set of the 1990s. And he was incredibly accurate in his predictions of what that would involve. What I'm arguing in the book is that we lived in an environment that was kind of defined by Woolsey snakes from two, 1993 through the invasion of Iraq in 2003 – right up until about 2013, so 20 years or so. But now the dragons are back and they've watched us struggle in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. And if 1991 showed everybody how not to fight the West, the invasion of Iraq and the subsequent conflicts have shown them how to fight us. And people have adapted and learned from that. And now we're dealing with dragons and snakes at the same time and in many of the same places.
1: And you you kind of paint the, the the kind of picture of a world where the snakes act more like dragons and the dragons are acting more like snakes. Is that, yeah. is that right? And, and kind of both are kind of borrowing from each other lessons for how you deal with a foe, as in yeah. this case the West, which is in conventional military terms kind of unmatched and unmatchable.
2: Yeah, if, if you stick to the conventional definition of warfare that we like to apply and you fight us in a quote-unquote fair fight, on the battlefield, where we can bring all of our assets to bear, the outcome's going to be, you know, what happened to Saddam in 1991. It's going to be the highway of death. And people aren't stupid. They know that. H.R. McMaster, who I referenced in the book a couple of times, has this great saying that there are only two ways to fight the United States, asymmetric and stupid. And people have, you know, figured that out and are adapting and learning from each other. I think the key differences, though, are that state actors, the dragons, are copying techniques from the snakes, whereas non-state actors are actually getting capabilities that, and lethality levels that you used to have to be a nation state to, to have. And that's partly because of things like drones and GPS and handheld uh, smartphones and, and other devices that really give guys in a in a non-state armed group. Levels of capability that you used to have to be a government military to achieve. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of this growing together into the middle. So we'll come on to the snakes
1: and the dragons in a minute. But before we do, I'm interested in just dwelling for a moment on your sense of how they've adapted and why they've adapted. Because you've got a particular theory, haven't you? Yeah. yeah. um, For for why snakes and dragons have managed to take these lessons from each other in the ways that they have.
2: Yeah, well, there are a number of sort of mechanisms of adaptation that I look at in the book. And what I always find is that when I write a book, the bit that I find interesting to write isn't necessarily the the bit that people find interesting to read. So So no
1: one's actually asked you about this? No, they
2: haven't actually, no. I mean, I, I, I... So I would not be surprised and I won't get mad if people skip that chapter, you know, but in the book, I talk about four mechanisms of adaptation. I talk about social learning where people learn from the experiences of other groups. And of course, the proliferation of cell phones and social media and the internet means that that happens much more quickly than in the past. And people are able to copy each other and learn from each other's experience pretty rapidly. The second mechanism is natural selection. So sort of combat Darwinism, right? Where the lucky and the smart and the sort of well-adapted survive and those that have maladaptive traits just get wiped out, like literally. And I use a number of examples to illustrate how that actually works in practice in the kinds of conflicts we're dealing with now. The third mechanism is what Charles Darwin called artificial selection, where we are sort of inadvertently breeding a better class of terrorist by the way, we've conducted the war on terrorism, for example, and I use a few examples for that. And then the final one is institutionalizing, and, that, and that's through adaptation. kind of putting
1: pressure on terrorist groups yeah. and and kind of forcing in a way this kind of turnover to 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 mean that the fittest terrorist kind of yeah. Wh-
2: what happens is if you put enough pressure on an adversary group, a terrorist group, to make it adapt, but not enough to destroy it, you actually improve that group. And I use the example of the Pakistani Taliban, where we have killed at a distance of about four years apart, three successive leaders of the Pakistani Taliban, and each time that leader's been replaced by a better, more experienced, more respected, more capable, more ideologically extreme leader. So we're actually improving Mm -hmm. the terrorist as we do that. Another example is in Iraq, where we almost completely destroyed Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and all that was left of it at the end of the surge was this very small remnant, of highly experienced, extremely pissed off, you know, radical, hard bitten combat veterans, and that became the core from which ISIS emerged a couple of years later. Right, so almost like sort of drug resistant bacteria, and uh, you know, it, it, you got to be very careful about using biological metaphors against an adversary. Right, it has a very ugly history. The only reason I'm willing to do that in the book is that. It's not like we're peering in from the outside of the ecosystem. Like we're in the same combat Darwinism process as them. And it's not to dehumanise the adversary. It's to say, actually, we're all on the same boat here. We're all adapting and evolving in a combat ecosystem that's shaped by, you know, a variety of pretty pitiless uh, arithmetic. And so, this evolution has happened, and
1: our adversaries on both sides, both the dragons and the snakes, have have completely changed. So let, let's mm. start with the. The snake stand because these yeah. are the kind of adversaries at the end at the end of the Cold War we found ourselves facing the you know the um, the biker gangs, the you yeah. know asymmetric terrorist groups and so on
2: how what lessons have they learned? How have they changed so they've decentralized a lot back in the day groups like al Qaeda were actually quite centralized and structured and had you know training camps and committees and you know um, uh, they're pretty overt. Since 9-11 and really since about the time of the London 7-7 bombing, we've seen them become much more cell-based, amorphous, individual, ad hoc, self-generating individuals carrying out terrorist attacks, this radical decentralization, which is enabled by things like cell phones and social media, but it's also an effect of the way we crushed these terrorist groups after 9-11. We've also seen the emergence of guerrilla terrorism, where instead of kind of coming in with the team from the outside, like an expeditionary terrorist attack. People are reaching in with social media and growing guerrilla terrorist teams close to the target. Uh, We've seen uh, the emergence of a lot of what I call the urban siege technique, where because of urbanization and the fact that the cover now is in the cities, not in the countryside, you see deliberate attempts to actually shut down an entire city through a terrorist attack, so rather than a traditional bombing, you know, or a a hostage situation, you have people taking over entire city blocks and, you know, hotels and, you know, disrupting Mm -hmm. megacities through deliberate action. And then the final thing I think that's worth pointing out is this idea of leaderless resistance, which is an idea that actually comes out of the far right racist world in the United States in the 1980s. And it's the idea that when you're going up against an adversary that's constrained by the rule of law, you can have a legal group that's out there that doesn't break the law, that doesn't engage in violence itself, that through like the freedom of speech just puts out targeting lists and techniques and uh, ways to operate, and then individuals can just self-generate and carry out their own attacks as they, as they like. And that's been really something that we've seen, particularly in Europe, in the last five to 10 years. And that's kind
1: of like, so So they've learned how to kind of hit harder at the same time as being much harder to spot or to be to be striked against yeah. by, you know, um, I suppose, legacy militaries in a sense yeah, that, that big, were just designed to take on other state adversaries.
2: The big strength that an insurgent or a terrorist group has is it's really hard to see. The big weakness it has is it doesn't have a lot of firepower. In the last 20 years, we've seen increasing access to lethality, you know, firepower, for individuals and at the same time the very flood of connectivity and massive amounts of internet traffic and cell phones and so on actually makes it ha- easier for these groups to hide in the clutter of social media networks and in in big cities so it's a it's a different environment now and you've got a more lethal but also harder to see adversary out there
1: and so these were the kinds of organizations that especially post 9/11 the entire security and military <clears throat> architecture was rebuilt to, yeah. to 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 kind of combat, weren't they? Mm-hmm. And, and and so you you kind of suggest in the book that as we pivoted towards this threat in such a decisive way, we actually left a blind spot, which were those old dragons that yeah. might have been pushed to the kind of um, to the sidelines by the by the end of the Cold War, but they never actually went away.
2: Yeah. So if in the 1990s you were focusing on a variety of of snakes. After the invasion of Iraq, we really narrowed our gaze to just one snake, right? You know, international Islamic terrorism. And while we had tunnel vision on dealing with that threat and on sort of digging ourselves out of a hole of our own making in Iraq, we were so bogged down and focused on that that we didn't really have the bandwidth to think about anything else. Now, I should say people were trying to think about it. They were just so overly committed to all the, you know, the problems of Iraq and Afghanistan and so on that we just didn't have time. While we were bogged down like that, China, Russia, North Korea, Iran were not bogged down. They were much free, you know, freer to think about how to react and adapt. And there was a process of conscious adaptation that went on, in, particularly in Russia and China, in response to watching us struggle in Iraq and Afghanistan. And in the book, I draw a distinction between wartime evolution, which tends to be kind of tit for tat, unconscious, reacting to an adversary, and peacetime adaptation, which is conscious and concept-led. And this is an idea put forward by a guy called Steve Rosen, who's one of the leading theorists of military adaptation in the US. But if you apply it to the period since the Cold War, it really reinforces his point that there's kind of two modes, right, a wartime mode and a peacetime mode. We've been in wartime mode ever since 9-11. Our adversaries have been able to have that freedom to think and, and experiment while watching us struggle. And their main
1: thinking and experimentation has been around actually how to borrow t- the techniques and philosophies of the snakes, so how to kind of open up new theatres and, and modes of combat which were kind of subkinetic or certainly subconventional. Yeah,
2: sub-threshold, we could say, right? right. I mean, the, the, there is a significant difference between the Russian and the Chinese approach. The, the Russian approach is about riding the edge of detectability, making what you do incredibly ambiguous so that you can always deny what you're doing and you can achieve political goals without actually exposing yourself to a major military retaliation. So the way they ran the seizure of Crimea, for example, or the way they've operated in Syria, many times they've avoided going sort of right up into the extremely kinetic level of warfare. They've stayed down in the shaping kind of threshold level. Mm. In the Chinese case, you see something different. You see the Chinese defining our way of war, and there's a great book called The Unrestricted Warfare, which I quote at length that two Chinese senior colonels wrote in 1999, which later formed the basis for a Chinese warfighting doctrine that's called Three Warfares. They basically had analyzed the Western way of war and identified a number of weaknesses in the way we operate and said, let's not compete directly with the West in that area. Let's go outside the boundaries of what they consider to be warfare. So things like strategic real estate acquisition, manipulating drug smuggling, acquiring technological capabilities that allow them to define global technological systems, acquiring economic, political, and informational tools, uh, cyber warfare. All these things are all laid out in this book in 1999. And you think how long ago that was? It was the internet. The, you know, more or less the infancy of the internet and pre-social media, but they were already thinking ahead and thinking, how do we get outside of the American focus and the Western you know, sweet spot into areas where maybe Western planners won't even realise they're at war, but they certainly by the time they do, it'll be too late.
1: And I think this is one of the most striking parts of your book is the idea that actually conventional combat, all those tanks and planes, they're actually just the very tip of an iceberg of what we would now have to understand to be great power conflict, yeah. And so that 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 iceberg just descends deeper and deeper, doesn't it? And and you kind of enter a world which is um, kind of blurry and and uncertain. But mm-hmm. but warfare's been stretched, isn't it, since mm-hmm. the end of the Cold War? What what we even think warfare is has become stretched further and further to include more and more parts of life.
2: Yeah, it has, and I think we've. In some ways, we've stretched the concept of war to the point where it's, it's kind of hard to get your arms around, hard to grasp exactly what you're talking about, right? If, if everything's warfare, then nothing is, you know? But another way of thinking about it is that Western countries tend to have a particularly narrow, battlefield-centric, kinetic view of what warfare is. And our adversaries have realized that we're extraordinarily dominant in that space so it's sort of avoidance behavior. They're looking for other ways to, to expand the envelope so that they can confront us without you know, drawing a, a major uh, destructive response. So I think that's true of the Russians. It's true of the Chinese. I talk a bit about Iran and about North Korea in the book as well. And they, in their own ways, have also been adapting in the same fashion. And I guess the, the meta conclusion in the book is, if our adversaries are adapting, in the ways they're adapting because of our military dominance then they're reacting in a sort of fitness landscape that we've created so can we maybe direct their their uh, evolution in a different way by changing what we do and i asked that question Towards the end of the book, yeah.
1: let, let, let's go into some more specific and concrete examples now. Mm. So, so what are these new theatres of, of conflict? Where 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 is it now happening? And what are the ones you think that are kind of most overlooked by people? That that where it's kind of warfare on one side, and in fact, we actually just don't even know that it's been declared.
2: Well, I think probably you know for a European audience, one of the big blind spots is Chinese economic and industrial penetration of Europe. right? So eight out of 10 major ports are owned by the Chinese or have a major Chinese investor. The largest port in Europe, Rotterdam, the port operator is Chinese state-owned enterprise. China owns the port of Piraeus, which is the American fleet base in the Mediterranean. They own the port of Darwin in Australia. They've attempted to buy hotels right on the edge of very major naval bases in the UK and in the US and elsewhere. You've got
1: as a form of like intelligence collect. I mean, well, why does hotels have yeah, anything to do with warfare?
2: So the short answer to that is we don't really know, right? And I asked that question like, what, what's going on here? Actually, in the US,
1: maybe they just want to buy hotels. <laughs> well, indeed, and the,
2: the part of the part of the issue here is that all this stuff is unproven and at some level kind of unprovable, right? Because it's ambiguous. It isn't covert so in the. US case the u.s. decided that China buying the Hotel Dell which is in Coronado in Southern California was a threat to the. US national security because it's the hotels right in the middle of a very dense concentration of naval power and so they blocked that purchase in a similar situation in the UK a Chinese company bought a hotel that's right on the choke point that every nuclear submarine has to go through. To get out of Faslane in Scotland, but the British government, I'm sure, did due diligence, and the Royal Bank of Scotland lent them the money. So, obviously, there was nothing, you know, nefarious there. In the Australian case, Australia sold the entire port of Darwin to a Chinese company that has pretty strong links to the PLA, the, the Chinese military, and the US got very upset about that because that's also a US Marine base. I think my best or my favorite example, though, is in the northern Marianas in the Pacific, which is a little American Commonwealth territory. Chinese junkets, you know, so uh, gambling syndicates from Macau and Hong Kong and Shanghai have funded the construction of a major casino, which people fly in and out of and spends, you know, pays vast amounts of tax into the very otherwise underdeveloped, Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas, that's about 100 miles from Guam, which is a very, very major US naval base that the Chinese have always been very worried about. So it's almost, in that case, I think you can suggest that this is about putting economic pressure on people who are working closely with the United States to say, you know, there's there's downsides to your relationship with America. It's sort of using economic soft power to uh, counteract American hard power.
1: Have we just all been... Kind of asleep at the wheel throughout all of this, you know. Has there has there been you know a, as as adversaries have kind of pivoted in all these really important ways? It kind of it's implied in this narrative that we are basically, not knowing that war's being declared, have developed absolutely no defences to conflict which has kind of strayed outside of the conventional kinetic ones which we're used to dealing with.
2: Yeah, I think if you have an environment where your adversary has a much broader definition of warfare than you do then two really dangerous things can happen, right? On the one hand, your adversary can be engaging in warfare, but you don't realize it because your definition of warfare is so much more narrow. And so until before you know it or before you realize it, you're already in a major conflict and it's too late to adapt. That's one problem. I think even worse is if you have a much narrower definition of warfare than your adversary, you can be doing things that you think are perfectly normal peacetime interaction, like trade wars, for example, or locking up executives from a phone company because you don't like their relationships. These are all things that we've been doing lately to China. And if, China, if if your adversary has a much broader definition, they can interpret these things as acts of war. So you can actually end up with two powers fighting each other when neither wants to actually fight each other, but they are sort of talking themselves into a conflict because of the way they've defined conflict differently. And I think that's the big risk here. I mean, if you look at China, and you look at the United States for example it's pretty clear neither one wants to fight the other but the risk here is that we misinterpret each other or that we see actions by an av- a potential adversary as, as aggressive and then we start treating them that way and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and we end up in a war that nobody really wants
1: let's let's look at one of the theaters which is pushed right up to people which they encounter every day information mm. so th- this is it is information itself now in the eyes of militaries and states around the world, a theatre of war, a yes. space
2: which war happens within? Yes, the short answer is yes, right? And there's been the concept of information war for a very long time. The capabilities to put that into place didn't really begin to emerge until we had very widespread social media and you know WhatsApp and Signal and all those kind of tools. We've seen non-state actors doing that. We've seen countries like the Assad regime in Syria uh, and others creating the so called electronic army to to support their their goals. The Russians created a thing called the information troops of the Russian Federation after the war in Georgia, which involves information warfare, cyber warfare, but also like hardware, like the ability to take down a data system and a fiber optic cable network and put in place your own, right? Or EMP weapons that can knock out electronic systems. So the Russians probably have the most comprehensive in terms of a battlefield information warfare capability. But there are others, like, for example, North Korea, which you wouldn't consider a major player in some ways, is described as a cyber superpower because they have enormously capable hacking networks that they employ to punish their adversaries, to generate money, and and so on. So information warfare is very much part of the, the game now. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is this Russian idea of reflexive control, which is about understanding what your adversary wants to believe and what they would prefer to be true and manipulating their perception so that rather than trying to convince them that you're the good guy or they're going to lose in a sort of advertising style of information warfare, which is the Western way, you're putting them instead in a cognitive box where it doesn't really matter whether they like you or not. They're thinking about the situation in a particular way that suits your interest. Best example of that is the Russian manipulation of interference in the 2016 election, right? You can look at any random three-minute segment on CNN anytime in the last four years, and you'll see talking heads shouting at each other about some supposedly historical Russian operation to hack the American election. You almost want to shake them and say, no, the operation is ongoing, and you now are the operation, right? You're actually creating the effect that you guys are complaining about. Would you like to
0: support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side.
1: So how big and monumental a kind of shift is this? As as, as militaries began to see kind of information as a theatre of war, not just a tool of war, not as something which is used within a conflict, but actually where the conflict itself happens... You know, and began to talk about information manoeuvre or information dominance or moral, cognitive, psychological mm-hmm. struggle or all, all these different concepts. How, how important was that as, a, as a, almost like a starting point which will change um, the whole way in which information ecosystems work and the nature and quality of information that we're all going to actually be confronted with?
2: Well, I think it's, it, it's a very important turning point, and I'll make two points. One is that we're now in an environment of what you might call fragmented reality, where it's not that we all agree on what reality is and we disagree on whether that's good or bad. We are all in our own echo chambers where our version of reality may be completely incompatible with somebody else's, and the facts that we're relying on that we have no doubt are true might be completely different from somebody else's, to quote a phrase, alternative facts right? that, that are out there. That's one issue. The other issue is that with urbanisation and smart systems And the emergence of sort of GPS connected and internet connected microcontrollers that run a lot of the information systems, but also the hardware and the infrastructure of modern life, we're now at a point where you can actually do lethal kinetic damage to somebody with just a cyber attack, right? So in the old days, it used to be that, you know, the worst thing I could do to you with a cyber attack was to screw with your data. Now I can turn the gas on in your apartment and then turn your toaster on and and blow you up. Or I can, you know, open the drawbridge as your car's driving across it. Or I can take down the electrical system and knock out your ability to ventilate a building. You know, there's what we call skater systems, right? The little microcontrollers that run modern infrastructure. They're on the internet. In many cases, they're talking to other devices on the internet. And we've seen the emergence of what you might call cyber kinetic warfare, where you're doing cyber attacks that have a direct lethal kinetic effect, and you're simultaneously doing kinetic attacks to target a cyber system. So it's become much more blended, right? So back in the day, we used to talk about cyber warfare as if it was going to be a standalone thing. What we find now is it's just an adjunct maneuver space alongside air, land, sea, cyber, space. They're all integrated. And you've got people who are both simultaneously shooting people using space systems and targeting your information as part of a seamless blend of tools in a combat environment. The Russians are probably the best example of that right now in terms of how they've operated in Ukraine, but there are others.
1: Well, air, sea, land, space, snakes and dragons, dragons and snakes. We've kind of heard from you that in many ways we've just been wrong-footed by adversaries since the end of the Cold War and certainly since our kind of monofocus on radicalism is terrorism since 9-11 – How do we begin to fight back? Now, we've just kind of been speaking about information warfare, and that seems to be a good place to begin yeah um it seems like an area which is inherently just just essentially easier for autocracies to win in than us you know we 've got with all the tanks in the world, all the planes in the world our the thing that 's constraining us isn't technical capacity is it it's the law and it's it's the reputation of our militaries and liberal
2: democracies. How yeah. do they start moving in the information space well i actually I have a slightly different point of view I, I actually think that autocracies do rather badly in the information space classic example would be. Hosni Mubarak, who just just died re- recently, who was the president of Egypt, when the Arab Spring began to get going in early 2011, there was a series of sort of days of rage where people would come out on a Friday and protest on the street. And in late January of 2011, in response to that, being an autocratic government, they had the ability to do this. The Egyptian government just shut down the internet and turned off the cell phone system. And what happened was, five times as many people as before came out on the street. And if you talk to people about what happened then, they'll say, well, before the regime did that, it was just a bunch of protesters and we didn't really think much about it. But then they took our fucking internet, right? And they took our cell phones away and that pissed everybody off, right? And the second thing they said to my research team when we were talking to them was they made it so that in order to figure out what was going on, you had to go out on the street or you couldn't, just log on and, and see what was happening. So it actually massively backfired, right? The Syrians learned from Mubarak's experience. So Syria used to, during the height of the civil war, selectively shut down parts of the internet and parts of the cell phone system to see who would jump from one system to another and try to track people. And they created an electronic army to to counter the rebels in Syria. But they also had a, a, a bit of a struggle, right, in terms of losing credibility nobody believing what they said anymore, people trying to organize in ways that would get away from the government narrative. And I think we've seen something rather similar in Hong Kong and we're seeing something right now in China where there's a pretty serious collapse of public confidence in the Chinese government's communications around the coronavirus by ordinary Chinese who no longer believe what they're seeing on the state-owned media. So I think if you are... If you are authoritarian and you want to control the information flow, you can't afford any mistakes, right? And it's very hard to do that in a way that maintains credibility. If you're a democracy, well, you're not actually trying to control it in the same way. And so people sort of accept mistakes and differences of opinion and you know the fact that sometimes sometimes people get things wrong and it's not all undermining the credibility of your your political system it's just you know that's how it is it's messy and so i think there is actually some advantages in the information space to being a democracy but i do think that what we're seeing now is a deliberate targeting of social cohesion and political unity by these actors who are trying to push us into Corners where we all hate each other. There's a great book by a guy called Matt Taby, who's a um, journalist for Rolling Stone. I don't know him, but his book is awesome. It's about it's called Hate Inc. and it's about how the modern media business model pushes media outlets to exacerbate conflict. And that's you know that's understandable from a, an economic standpoint, but when you have an actor like Russia or China that's deliberately set about to exploit those divisions, they can pick up on differing opinions and exacerbate them and amplify them and drive it more into a a conflict space than otherwise it would be. And if you look at Russian interference in the US election in 2016, as an example, it's very clear that they were finding the most extreme points of view at different, different groups and amplifying those and pushing them further and further apart.
1: Do you think information warfare is one of the places where kind of great power conflict has suddenly become real for the normal person? Because I think in in lots of parts of the great power conflict it kind of i do think it feels quite distant from from anyone who isn't a kind of international relations buff i mean yeah, you know, the spratly islands in the south china sea you know that doesn't i don't really care that much about that uh, maybe i should but it doesn't seem to affect my life on a day-to-day basis yeah, right. as as really as russia taking control of my timeline
2: right well so I think it was Trotsky who said, you might not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. you know? <laughs> so I think this stuff doesn't matter to the ordinary person until suddenly it does. You know, you know, the shooting of some minor Austro-Hungarian duke in a Balkan city in June 2014, uh, 1914, didn't matter to anyone until suddenly it did, you know, and it started the First World War. I think that the, for sure, information warfare is the area that's most in people's faces that they can see you know, fake news and trolls and bots and all this kind of ridiculous Manchurian candidate conspiracy theory about- I mean, it's become a media Trump. obsession, yeah, not it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we have to recognize that, in fact, that obsession is being deliberately stoked by these actors who are trying to encourage, you know, CNN and Fox and MSNBC to just keep on going with this conspiracy theory. It reminds me of that, remember that NASA Mars rover that was supposed to last for 90 days and it ended up running for 10 years. I do, right? yeah. Yeah, it's sort of like that. I think this is supposed to be a short-term, temporary Russian operation back in 2016. And I'm sure there are people slapping each other on the back right now in some dacha outside Moscow and saying, hey, this thing's been going for four years. You know, we're amazing. And it's because we've been amplifying it, you know, for our own reasons. But I certainly think that's one of the key areas. I also think this idea of national resilience is an area that does confront a lot of people. Perhaps not here in the UK, but if you live in any of the Baltic states or in Scandinavia, you'll be seeing publications coming out from your own government talking about if war comes and how to organize resistance. There's a thing called the Estonian Defense League, which has you know people in every village that are preparing for the potential of resistance warfare if Russia comes in. The Swedish government just published a series of things on this. So Uh, Up on the Russian frontier, you know, in in Eastern Europe and in the North, this very much front of mind that you might start to see this kind of stuff. If people have the opportunity, I'd recommend a wonderful Norwegian soap opera called Occupied, which is about the Russians invading Norway and what happens. And in the first episode, you know, spoiler alert, the, the Russians invade Norway and basically nobody notices, right? They do it in a sub-threshold way.
1: David, you've just spoiled a Norwegian soap opera for everyone that's going to be
2: listening. But here's another thing to think about. If you're the Norwegian government and you want to actually make the threat real for the Norwegian people, I would suggest a soap opera is a pretty good way to do that, right? So I think governments are going to have to find different ways to communicate what the threat is in this new kind of world where there's a contested information space.
1: But what about these other? That, that's tanks running across the border, which I think everyone can kind of, if not feel, is an immediate threat. Certainly, could see could see why that would be worrying. But what about all these other parts of the new, like liminal conflict, as you call it? Well, yeah. why should I care if the Chinese own a port in Rotterdam, or right, well, if the China, if the Russians build a, a hotel overlooking a military base in Faslane? Yeah, Chinese in the case oh, of China. Chinese. Yeah.
2: But, well, maybe maybe you don't need to care, right? And this is the point about it being ambiguous. So I'm very careful to say in the book, I'm not suggesting there's anything nefarious about any of that. In fact, there's a way of thinking about it that says it could be protective, right? So let's imagine a cyber attack by China on the major port systems in Europe, for example, just a hypothetical example. Well, most of those ports are actually run by Chinese companies now. So China would be costing itself billions of dollars a week to shut down Western port systems with the cyber attack. So that actually suggests that by being economically integrated, we're less likely to see that stuff, right? So it actually may be a good thing to see that level of, of integration, right? So, so they'd
1: be essentially attacking themselves.
2: Yeah, they'd be attacking themselves. Another, or A more aggressive way to make the same point would be China's created a whole series of vulnerabilities for itself by creating all this property ownership and infrastructure all over the world, but particularly in Europe, and at any point, any European government could just nationalize that property and, and punish China. So in fact, it's like they've exposed themselves to integration with the West and potentially made it less likely that we'll see conflict. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen economically integrated systems. And in fact, you know they do sometimes go to war with each other. One of the classic cases is in the early 20th century... Lloyd's of London, the big shipping insurance firm, actually insured approximately two-thirds of the German merchant fleet. And they found themselves asking just before the First World War, if we go to war with Germany and the Royal Navy sinks the German merchant fleet, do we have to pay up like, to German
0: <laughs> ship owners?
2: And the answer they got from from uh, the law lords was, yes, yes, you do, right? So they were, we were very economically integrated immediately prior to the First World War, but it didn't stop us fighting each other.
1: Did they yeah. actually have to
2: pay up? I don't think they did. This is all described <laughs> in Liaquat Ali's book, um, Lords of Finance. But, you know, in the event, I don't think people had to pay up. But the point is that we often think that if we're economically integrated with someone, that means by definition we won't go to war. Sometimes it means that. Sometimes it just means that it would be much more painful when we do, you know?
1: What does the fight back look like? Do, do, do our militaries have to move into all these new liminal spheres? Do we have to start buying ports and hotels too?
2: <laughs> I don't think we need to start what, buying ports, although there are militaries out there that do own those. But no, I think it's important to say that the adversaries that I'm talking about here aren't solely doing liminal and asymmetric. They're also doing conventional modernization, right? So, you know, the Chinese are building aircraft carriers. They've got a much bigger submarine fleet now. They've invented an entire new class of missile that can knock out a carrier at sea, you know, 2,500 miles away. So they're, they're, they are still in the conventional space. And that's true of the Russians too. They've got some of the most advanced armored vehicles on the planet. They've got extremely capable tactical nuclear weapons. You know, they're, they're, a, they're a real conventional, traditional threat also. So the issue here is we can't just completely get out of the game of conventional warfare or we're just leaving that space to potential adversaries. So we've all got to do both, right? And this is the point. You've got to do dragons and snakes. You don't get to pick one or the other anymore. We have to be ready for conventional warfare as we define it, but also ready to recognize that we're in a liminal conflict and be able to deal with it. So in the book, I sort of come up with three courses of action, you know, as the military say, things we could think about doing to deal with this. The first one's what i describe as doubling down, right? So just spending more, getting more stuff, Paying more money, building more tanks, you know, and just just sort of trying to overwhelm them with even more conventional military capability, and I argue that that's not going to work. If we're already at the point where adversaries have adapted to our traditional way of war, then doing more in that traditional space isn't going to help. It may, in fact, just accelerate the problem. The second one I talk about, and I, I use a military slang term here, is embracing the suck. Right, so recognizing that we're probably going to decline, that our adversaries are going to get more powerful and just accept that, deal with it and manage the decline and look for kind of a soft landing. I also suggest that that's not probably going to work either. If you look at traditional examples of a major global empire reducing in strength and someone else taking over, there are examples, like for example, the the Greek city-states being succeeded by the Romans, where actually the Greeks had a pretty decent life under, under Roman control. It worked out pretty well for them. Or you can look at the British Empire sort of handing the baton to the Americans after World War II, and Britain then recovering from a period of, of you know overstretch. So certainly there are examples. But the problem is if you survey the landscape now, it's pretty hard to see who we would hand over to that would be both strong enough to take over the mantle and friendly enough that it wouldn't be a disaster it's also not clear that Russia or China wants to be the next United States you know they actually critique that that model you know in itself so I, I say it's probably not going to work either and then I suggest a third option which is what I call going Byzantine so we think of the Byzantine Empire as being different from the Roman Empire but the Byzantines always sort of themselves as Romans you know and Rome collapsed in the fourth century, the Byzantine Empire survived for another 1,100 years, right up until the 29th of May, 1453, when Constantinople was was captured by the Ottomans. And you can ask yourself, how did they do that? How did they survive against an enormous range of increasingly strong enemies for more than a millennium? And there's some interesting things that they did. They copied selectively from their adversaries They developed certain niche technologies that it was hard for their adversaries to match. They focused a lot less on going overseas in expeditionary conflicts to conquer people and instead focused on being agile and reactive to protect their own territory. And most importantly, they focused a lot on domestic resilience and social cohesion and unifying their system under a single pretty efficient governance and, and economic system. So I think there's lessons there, right? And I obviously you can as you can tell from the way I'm talking about it, I think that's the best option. I don't think it necessarily could work. <laughs> I mean it still could could fail. But I think of all the options that are out there right now, that one's probably the most likely to work, even though it still might not.
1: Social cohesion of course, being one of the things that is exactly under attack and seems to be yeah. moving further away from us right now, rather than closer. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: How
1: does how does it make you feel thinking about the kind of world over the next ten or twenty years? Does it kind of make you feel anxious? Because it it kind of it feels in the book that you is you are basically describing a, a world of of much more intensive conflict than we are used to, yeah. and one where actually the West is not going to be the kind of automatic victor by yeah. any
2: means. I have mixed feelings about it, right? I mean, I think that on the one hand, it is a more complex and chaotic and potentially more dangerous world for the West. But I also look back on the almost 30 years since the end of the Cold War, and it's kind of hard to paint that as a period of success you know, for the world when we were the sole dominant military players. I mean, obviously, there's been an enormous expansion in economic prosperity and in democracy and in things like, you know, women's reproductive freedom and, you know, child health and all sorts of so I'm not suggesting it's been bad in that sense. But I do think we found ourselves bogged down in a series of inconclusive, unsuccessful conflicts that have just continued to soak up our capability. And you know, you can imagine an alternative history where instead of deciding that we were going to be the sole superpower and projecting force everywhere and getting into everybody else's business and all that. Instead of that, we'd focused on resilience, prosperity, social cohesion at home. We'd tried to set an example for others instead of invading and forcing democracy down their throats at the point of a gun. And maybe that would have worked out better. You know, So in a modern environment, in some ways, not being the top dog, not being the apex predator in the, in the ecosystem might turn out to be a better space, not only for uh, Western people, but for Western militaries as well
1: but do you think kind of in do you think military policy and foreign policy itself needs to become more politicized and i know i'm asking this to essentially a, you know a soldier scholar <laughs> yeah. um and and someone who knows how important it is for militaries to get on with the task of war fighting but i mean speaking from the uk perspective in the last series of general elections that we've had i can't really remember any debate about military or foreign policy really at all i mean there's, there's yeah. not much kind of contestation around it. Um, and I guess that it doesn't really rank on most people's kind of radar of things that they either really care about or the reason why they vote for whoever they vote for.
2: Yeah, I mean, war is fundamentally political, right? That's the difference between war and just random violence, you know, that it is political. And I think it was Clomassot, you know, the French Prime Minister in World War One, who said war is too important to be left to the generals, right? And in a modern context, what that means is it's not a purely technological or technical activity that's just civil servants and bean counters and professional military people. Everyone has a role in being part of a national conversation about what do we want the military to do, what, what do we want it to be for, and how does it translate into better outcomes for, for us? At the end of the book, I quote General J.F.C. Fuller, a great British general, very innovative, one of the inventors of, of the tank tank, uh, Core and, and author of some really important concepts in the late period right after World War One, also had a bit of a flirtation with Nazism in the Second World War, so we don't necessarily want to take all of his ideas to heart. But <laughs> one of the things that, that Fuller said was that, the, you know, channeling St. Augustine, the object of war is not victory, but a better peace, right? And he was making the point that battlefield victory is the first step. You need to be translating that battlefield victory into some kind of enduring positive political outcome, or you're actually not winning. And what we've been doing is very successfully winning battles, but continually failing to translate those battlefield successes into enduring political outcomes that our populations are happy with. And frankly- soldiers, you should it's un—it's dangerous to leave decisions about that stuff to soldiers. This is one of these areas where I have my opinions, but I, I, it's not up to me or any other military person to say what the British people should decide or the American people should decide about what they want their military to do. That's has to be in a democracy. It has to be a conversation among ordinary people and their elected representatives. I think the role of military scholars and of a book like this is to sort of tee up the issues and say these are the things we need to be thinking about but then to step back and let people you know have that conversation in the only way that's really legitimate which is you know in a in a in a democratic society it has to be elected leaders and voters that make those calls well david finally
1: relating all the you kind know, of all this great power conflict to the populations within which it's taking part and yeah. and in their name what's the what's the main lesson that people need to take out of your book and into their daily lives? Is, is it that, you know, as the concept of warfare stretches, they're just going to find themselves wittingly or unwittingly on a new series of fronts or or struggles between states?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like a pitch invasion at Twickenham. You know, the, the, the spectators are on the playing field now, or you might say the playing field has expanded to include the stands. So people are it's not like you sit outside of a zone of war and you look in at, at people on a battle space. We're all on the modern battle space, right? The concept of war has expanded to the point where it's actually affecting everybody. Now, this isn't the first time that happened. You know, During the Blitz, civilians realized that they were now tar- being targeted as part of a, a major conflict in the Second World War. It's, so it's not a, necessarily a new thing, but the means by which it's happening are new. So that's one key lesson is to realize that you're not outside looking in. We're actually all in the the battlefield environment. And then the other key lesson that I think that people should take from you know my book, but there are, there are also many other books that are out there that talk about this is the modern world as we like it, as it's existed since the Second World War. We don't like to think about this, but it actually rests on a military model that proved to be effective in 1945, that created the modern world as we know it, that proved to be effective again in 1991, that led to you know, the, the world we all live in today. And even you could go further back and say that the modern Western democratic world order rests on the back of two unbroken centuries of British and then American military supremacy, particularly naval supremacy. And unfortunately, the military model that underpins our way of life is showing signs of strain and it looks like it's not really working anymore. So back to Trotsky, right? You might not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And unless we can recover some kind of balance and figure out how to make that model work again, the world as we know it right now is probably not going to be around that much longer.
1: You might not be interested in war, but war is interested interested in in you. you. Well, um, author of The Dragons and the Snakes, David Kilconnell, thank you very much.
2: Thanks, man.
0: If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion, and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month ad-free listening and early access to currently available via Apple podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too.